Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with the afternoons on 770 CHQR. Welcome to the Thursday edition of the program, turning out to be an eventful Thursday. I'm not going to say historic. That would really be, I think, at this point, overstating the situation. But uh, there is some political drama unfolding within the UCP and how much of a caucus revolt is happening here. We've got one MLA who's called on the premier to resign another MLA who well hasn't actually called for the premier to resign but basically says I support the other guy who did just kind of a weird way about uh, going about it Brian Jean is kind of lurking in the background uh, offering his approval for all of this so interesting ongoings we will talk a lot more about that today 403-974-8255 and certainly want to hear from you a lot of other stuff we're going to get to as well of course but let me mention this fact out of the gate here and um I guess this is obvious to anyone who follows Alberta politics. When you sit back and think about it, it's quite remarkable. It was uh, political blogger uh, Dave Cornway, eh? Dave Berta, as he's known, uh, who reminded us all of this. The last Alberta premier to win a bid for re-election. You have to go all the way back to 2004. Ralph Klein, 17 years ago was the last time that an Alberta premier won re-election. Since then, we've had numerous other premiers. None of them has done so. They either didn't get to their second election as party leader, or I guess in the case of Rachel Notley uh, and Jim Prentice as well, they lost. So what kind of an omen is that here for Jason Kenney and the problems that uh, he's now dealing with? Is Jason Kenney going to make it to the next election? Is Jason Kenney going to win the next election? Or is this weird streak going to hold? There is something to be said, I think, about this idea of a curse uh, that has been uh, cast upon Alberta premiers since 2004. So, look, it's no surprise that there is some discontent within the UCP party. We've we've seen that manifest itself in a few occasions. Most notably was just over a month ago when these uh, 17 or 18 MLAs, including Todd Lowen, by the way, uh, signed this letter expressing very publicly their disapproval, their disagreement with the uh, public health restrictions brought in by the premier then. I do get the sense that as things have worsened on the pandemic front, over the past month or so. And I think given that, you know, there, there are better times just around the corner here as the vaccine roller picks up pace, that some of those MLAs have backed off a little bit from that. And it is worth noting, by the way, as you go through uh, Todd Lowen's letter explaining why he's resigning as UCP caucus chair and why he's calling on Jason Kenney to resign, the letter doesn't really talk about COVID restrictions at all. 
And we'll play for you some of what uh, Todd Lowen said, speaking with uh, Shea Gannam just uh, about an hour and a half ago. But he said today that, that a lot of this goes to well even before the pandemic. So if that's the case, then this is a big problem for Jason Kenney. Like, it does sort of seem that a lot of this is specific to the pandemic. A lot of this is MLAs in his caucus not liking the government's pandemic response, not agreeing with some of the public health measures, etc. And it always seemed like for Kenny, there was a political light at the end of the tunnel, just like for us. There's a light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to the pandemic itself. For Premier Kenny, there was that political light at the end of the tunnel that once we get out of all of this, all of those issues fall by the wayside. It all becomes a moot point. It's all water under the bridge. Maybe that was the hope. But here we've got Todd Lowen with this strongly worded letter today that makes some vague references to, to public health restrictions but doesn't overtly mention them at all and list a number of other issues as to why he's concerned with the premier's leadership and the direction of the party and the government. So maybe this begins and ends with this guy. Like I say, it's kind of a situation that we've got like 1.5 MLAs involved in this at this point. One MLA who has said the premier needs to resign, another MLA who just says, well, I, I support that other guy and what he's saying without necessarily jumping on the bandwagon. So that was a, a little odd, but are we likely to see more? Now, it was interesting because there was originally a caucus meeting that was set for this morning that was canceled. Now we've heard word that there's a caucus meeting happening, perhaps even as we speak. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. And if there's any other MLAs who, who joined this revolt, if there's other MLAs that are willing to come out and publicly declare their support for the premier, and whether the premier himself is going to have anything to say about this. I think he's tolerated some of this discontent, you know, putting forward the idea that it's okay if uh, not everybody agrees on everything in a caucus. But this isn't just a disagreement uh, over certain policies. This cuts right to the heart of Jason Kenney's leadership of this party. Calling on the leader to resign is a lot different than saying, well, I disagree with this or I disagree with that. So how big a problem is this for Jason Kenney? And how much of this is good news for the Alberta NDP? Look, there's that whole question of uh, political practicality versus principle. You know, to what extent are you willing to make some compromises to keep a big tent intact? Or to what extent are you prepared to stand on principle, even if it means that the other side might benefit? Because, look, there is no doubt no doubt at all that this is all music to the ears of Rachel Notley and the NDP. And as they're learning, just as conservatives learned a few years ago, it's a lot easier to keep everybody unified when you're in opposition. Because you're all chasing that central goal. We got to get these people out of power. Now, there was certainly some discontent at times within the NDP when Rachel Notley was premier. And she didn't tolerate a lot of discontent, as a couple of MLAs found out the hard way. The NDP is pretty united at the moment. They're united, they're motivated, they're organized, they're raising a lot of money. And there's apparently a lot of discontent in the UCP. So it's something I think that anybody involved in this has to think about. What do I accomplish by going down this path? What do I accomplish if I stay on this other path?
So look, I'm not a partisan. I don't belong to a political party. I'm not here to carry the water for any political party. I'm like a lot of voters. I'll judge you on how you do and I'll cast my ballot in the next election. So I don't have a vested interest in all of this necessarily. But as an observer of politics, it is all quite fascinating. But we do want to uh, get your calls, your texts on all of this here this afternoon, 403-974-8255. But if you missed it earlier, let me just play for a few minutes. So Todd Lowen, MLA for Central Peace Notley, he is now the former UCP caucus chair, remains, as far as we're aware, still a member of the UCP caucus. He hasn't resigned from caucus and, as far as we know, has not been expelled from caucus. That may change by the end of the day, mind you. But let me play for you a few minutes uh, of this conversation earlier with Shea Ganim, starting with the question to Todd Lowen of why now? Well, you know, this, this, is a, this isn't just about COVID. This is about leadership. And, uh, and that's the main issue right now is leadership within, uh, within our caucus. And, you know, things have uh, been getting worse. Uh, just in the last week, we've had two canceled caucus meetings. And uh, caucus members haven't been informed why these, ca- these meetings were canceled. And, of course, caucus meetings, that's the opportunity for, for members of the government, member MLAs, to, to speak their mind and be able to ask questions and, and get direction from where, you know, where government's headed. And obviously, without those opportunities and caucus meetings, that uh, you know, it leaves MLAs in a situation where they they don't know what's happening. We haven't. Uh, we've also canceled uh, two now three weeks of the legislative session, and uh, so again, it just uh, there's just a, a you know large gap in communication and a, and a huge gap in leadership. Now, is this a recent development, or is this something that's been going on since Jason Kenney was became premier, or has he always governed this way, or have you seen a change in the way things operate? I think overall there was uh, the first few months. I think uh, seemed to go very well. It seemed like at that time we had a you know a, a team, and I think everybody was feeling pretty good. But I think this has been a, a steady di- decline in the last year and a half. Actually, it isn't something that just started with COVID. This started long before COVID, and uh, so it's just been a you know a situation where it just seems like uh, caucus members don't have an opportunity to uh, to be heard and and to be respected in, in their views and and that opportunity to be able to represent their constituents. And I'm a- Assuming these concerns have been raised in the past with the premier from yourself and from others who feel the same way, saying we don't feel we're being heard. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, uh, you know, it's it's almost uh, like one of those things where you say, well, you at first you whisper and then you nudge and then you talk and then you yell, then you scream and then and then it gets to the point where yeah, people just. Uh, you know, have had enough, and I think it's a, it's just getting more and more frustrating all the time. Um, now that you've taken this step, and we know there are other disgruntled MLAs, uh, you did get a message of support from another uh, UCP MLA, Mr. Hansen, saying he, he, he admires your courage. Um, do you think there will be other people joining you? Has there been discussions uh, amongst the UCP caucus in terms of leadership and saying we need to speak out and do something, or are you acting on your own here? Yeah, you know what? I'm acting on my own, and I th- I think the other MLAs they'll have their you know they have the opportunity to do what they feel is right for themselves and uh, and for their constituents. Obviously, uh, speaking out like this isn't an easy thing to do. It's a it's a very very tough tough thing to do, and uh, so I, I'll leave uh, the other MLAs you know to decide how they feel that they can best represent their constituents and uh, and make their voices heard. You know, you, uh, just explain this to me. You say that your voice wasn't heard, and Jason Kenney wasn't considerate of what caucus was feeling and what they would like to see happen. But 
to, you know, in, in his defense and what he has said publicly and the fact that he has tolerated a lot of infighting and a lot of public opposition to his government policy, he's saying, I do welcome these voices. I hear them. Indeed, we know they've been public. So how can you square that circle and say we're not being heard when he's given you license to go out and publicly make these kinds of statements? Well, I, th- I think, uh, you know, what happens behind closed doors is probably somewhat different than what happens in the public. You know, obviously, uh, you know, it's easy to say that, uh, that you know, caucus has a voice and, uh, and they, they're, they're free to do those things. But, we've, you know, we've obviously seen things with, where the, the people that have spe- spoken out uh, have been uh, not treated as well and had the opportunities that they, they've had taken away from them. So I think uh, it's maybe not fair to, to say that, uh, you know, that, that there's no repercussions for, for speaking out in this caucus. Okay, so there you go. MLA Todd Lowen speaking with Shaggy Annam a little bit earlier today about why he resigned as caucus chair, why he put all of this into a letter, and why he feels that Jason Kenney needs to resign as leader. How serious is this? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Lauren Gunter, columnist uh, for the Edmonton Sun, Post Media, edmontonsun.com. Lauren, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you. So, like I say, I mean, this is a pretty explicit call for the premier to to step down. This uh, critique goes well beyond, uh, you know, pandemic restrictions and touches on a number of other areas. How serious do you think this is? Serious? Yeah. 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 There's no way to explain this in a good or even a neutral way it's bad mm-hmm. if you're the premier uh how bad is it well you know you have to see Lowen hasn't withdrawn from the ucp he hasn't set up his own party there isn't uh, uh someone out there who's trying to uh, uh you know start a third party uh, uh, another party on the right uh, there's there's no one I've, I've I mean there, there's certainly talk uh, of reviving Wild Rose or calling it something different, but there isn't a real serious move to do that yet. So so just where does that come from? You know, some of the people who are pushing hardest for Kenny to resign and have been pushing it for a while are uh, key executives in Lowen's riding. So yeah. is this his response to them or is it? Uh, is it something more widespread? I, I know there's lots of dissatisfaction about uh, Kenny around the province, particularly uh, in in right wing circles. Uh, hard to say it's all old wild rose circles, but there's certainly that, that sort of leads you into where it's at. Um, and and I think that it's because he doesn't have. Um, uh, Lahid's charisma or or Ralph Klein's charm. Uh, you know, he's, he's kind of technocratic. He likes to be yeah. the expert on everything, and, and he's a very, very bright guy that way. But, he, you know, being the leader isn't about being the expert. It's about being the leader. And, uh, and I'm not sure that he has been as accessible as he should be, uh, both within the party and to voters in general. Yeah, and I think that represents some bigger challenges. I mean, if, if this were just about health restrictions, yeah. then, you know, we're, we're a few weeks away, hopefully, or a couple months away from, from ending a lot of those, that it would be easy enough for Kenny to just, you know, get through that, and then it's all yeah. under, water under the bridge, we all move forward here. But this goes well beyond that, right? So this, this yeah. isn't a problem that necessarily goes away in a couple of months, is it, it? No, and, you know, it would go away, too, if there was another oil boom. 
right? People put their heads down and make money, and they don't worry about who's in charge. Uh, But it's not that either. I, I, I think that to the extent that this is driven by economics, it is the result of Kenny not going after the federal government and Prime Minister Trudeau as forcefully as people would like. Because they get an awful lot of Albertans look around and they say, you know, they, we, we would not be in the middle of a boom, perhaps, if the feds weren't trying to keep us down. But the feds are trying to keep us down. They, you know, they, they don't want us to have Keystone XL. They're dragging their feet on Trans Mountain. They killed Northern Gateway. They killed Energy East. They put a tanker ban on the West Coast for only Alberta oil. They've increased the environmental assessments to such a degree there's never likely to be another energy mega project. They've scuttled uh, oil sands developments that would have brought $20 billion or more dollars into the province. And they say, you know, that's the source of our... They don't blame Kenny and his government for not being able to get the economy back on its feet. But they do blame them for not being as forceful with the culprit as they would like him to be. And and he has been too technocratic and too diplomatic, uh, I think, in handling the federal government. And I think it's been their strategy, the UCP strategy, to do that because they've needed federal help during the pandemic. But uh, but I think that that has, has weakened him politically with his own base. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, you know, Todd Lowen specifically mentioned that in his letters, so it's it's a very real issue. And it's interesting because presumably then, if, you know, if Andrew Scheer had prevailed in, in the last federal election, or if Aaron O'Toole manages to prevail in the next federal election, that that that, that would change yeah. the dynamic here considerably, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. And if Mickey Mouse became the president of the world, <laughs> yes, that, would, exactly. that would change things, too. Aaron O'Toole is not winning. Yes. Yeah. Aaron O'Toole is not winning the next election. Right? Uh, I, maybe if 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 people in central enough people in central Canada can get fed up with the incompetence and the the ethical challenges of the Liberal Party, maybe Trudeau won't win. But you know, if you'd asked me three or four weeks ago what the outcome of the next federal election would be, I would have said for sure it would be a Liberal majority. Uh, I think people are starting to see that the Liberals' botching of the vaccine file uh, has put us way behind the Americans in getting out of the pandemic stew. Uh, And so maybe that's having some impact in Ontario, but it's not showing up in the polls. So my guess is that that O'Toole is a dud and uh, Trudeau will be the next prime minister again, or will be the prime minister again. Yeah, I wouldn't bet against it. Do do you think Jason Kenney overstated or or raised expectations? Because, you know, it's one thing for him to say, hey, get behind me, we'll defeat the NDP. Well, obviously he did. But the idea that he was going to stop Trudeau, I mean, I don't know. Could he be doing more? Is is it realistic to think that a premier of of any province, let alone this one, is going to stop whatever it is the federal government is intent on doing? No, okay, but but having said that correctly, I mean, there isn't only so much constitutionally that one province can do i mean we're we're probably headed towards uh, an equalization referendum during the municipal elections this yeah. fall but so what like it, the, the equalization is in the constitution one province's angry voters voting to get rid of equalization will do nothing in fact it'll probably give the liberals more ammunition to win more seats in atlantic canada and quebec um so, I mean, there's some, as you correctly say, there's only so much that a provincial premier can do. 
but he can kick up a bigger stink. And, and I think that that has really annoyed people, that we, we haven't gone harder. Like even, even Doug Ford, again this morning, Doug Ford went after the federal government for not closing the borders to COVID cases. You know, we've seen numbers in the last couple of days that as many as one-third of the people coming into Canada who are supposed to go into what was called mandatory quarantine were exempted. They were just allowed to go through. They came in on a charter. Well, charter plane. People don't have to go to quarantine. Or they came in through a second place. They would fly into the United States and get somebody to drive them across the border. They come from India where we're supposed to have a ban against flights. But, you know, because they went to Seattle first or Buffalo, they were allowed to drive in without us checking where their origin was. And as a result, you know, this this whole thing, most of the people who've been stopped at the border and forced to go into the three-day expensive quarantine at government-approved hotels are snowbirds. I mean, they would, the federal government won't stop people who probably come from hotspots and make them go into quarantine, but they will make people who were vaccinated twice while they were at their winter home in Arizona spend three days. I mean, it, just, it boggles your mind that that level of political correctness and incompetence is allowed to go on. And yeah. At least Ford is saying something about that, and and Kenny is not, and 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 I don't understand why. I mean, you remember Kenny made his mark in uh, in I think 1995 by going after the MLA's pension plan. He was yeah. the head of the Alberta Association of Taxpayers at that time. He confronted Klein in the basement of the legislature and in a very dramatic way uh, forced Klein to cancel the MLA pension plan. It's not as though he can't stand up to powerful people, but for whatever strategic reasons, he hasn't stood up to Trudeau. And I think if he did that, just that, it would, it would, this, it would quiet an awful lot of the discontent in the UCP caucus. And there's there's still time for him to do that, I think. Oh, yeah, or, for sure. You know, I mean, obviously, some of this discontent is boiled over. But uh, I do think as we pivot out of this pandemic, it gives him the opportunity to, to really go harder on a lot of these issues. So yeah. I expect yeah. we'll see that. But what happens between I, I now do. and then, I guess, and, is another question. Is there another party being set up? No. Are there defections from the caucus? No. Is there another obvious leader out there? No. I mean, Brian Jean has stuck his head up again, uh, but I don't get the sense that he's actually looking for the job that he that that he's you know behind the scenes pushing all of this stuff. Um, and and all those things have to happen before there's a, a a split of real meaning that might elect the NDP. Remember, the NDP only won in 2015 because the right of center vote was split. And as soon as Kenny reunited it in 2019, the NDP were punted from office. So they're they're sitting there hoping like crazy this leads oh, sure. to a division on the right. <laughs> but without a division on the right, I, I don't think that, it, that even with bad polling numbers that this shows the NDP are the, are the next government. We'll see how it all plays out. We'll leave it there. Lauren, appreciate the input. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Hey, you bet. All the best. Lauren Gunter, Edmonton Sun columnist, uh, edmontonsun.com, calgarysun.com. So, yeah, I think, you know, that that discontent over taking a harder line with Ottawa it has been a problem. Maybe Kenny thought, you know, in the pandemic, maybe people expect me to put some of this stuff aside and let's cooperate with the federal government. Let's focus on the pandemic. But, you know, these issues haven't gone away. So Todd Lowen did go out of his way to mention it. We've heard other MLAs uh, mention it as well. 
So that that's definitely a part of this conversation for sure. Yeah, welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. A lot more to get to this afternoon. We will talk more about uh, some of the drama today in uh, Alberta politics and uh, a revolt of sorts brewing within the uh, UCP caucus, or at least certainly some dissent. Also coming up uh, later in this hour, we'll talk about uh, some of the challenges beef has been facing as of late. The beef industry, perceptions around beef, new survey uh, has an interesting look at how Canadians feel about beef. Still a staple for many Canadians, but some challenges loom on the horizon. Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University joins us coming up after 2.30. Off the top of this hour, conversation around vaccines, and in particular the AstraZeneca vaccine. And certainly there's been no shortage uh, of angst and hand-wringing and drama and confusion and uncertainty around all of this. Now, I'm in the camp that uh, got this vaccine once it was open to us Gen Xers. My wife and I both did. Um, what is today? Almost a month ago. Anyway. Uh, and yeah, look, and, and it was it was a decision we made together. And, and certainly I had COVID. My wife didn't. And I definitely wanted to, from her perspective, make sure that she had some protection because, yeah, things have not been great in Alberta recently. Now, we've had the first dose, like, what, about 250,000 or so Albertans. So some uncertainty about not just, you know, when and how we're going to get the second dose, but whether we made the right decision. I think part of the problem here, one of the consequences anyway of, of some of the mixed messages and confusion has been a sense of buyer's remorse. Maybe we should have just waited to get one of the other vaccines. Mind you, I think we've also made it easier for others to get vaccinated. My 18-year-old daughter is going to get vaccinated this week. So I think we've helped contribute to overall higher vaccination levels. But how do we, how do we answer that question? What's the lens we should look through it? And here's an interesting twist. Does the field of economics have something to offer in assessing all of this? Typically, we talk to you know, virologists and infectious disease specialists and, and all of that. But there's a really interesting piece uh, from... I think it was six economists in the Globe and Mail today with the headline, if you got an AstraZeneca vaccine, you made the right decision according to economics. So joining us to talk a bit more about it from, from that perspective is one of the authors of this piece. Uh, Blake Schaefer is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Calgary. Professor Schaefer, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. So I guess and that's the question, right? So what, what do economists know about vaccines? And I'm, I'm sure you've been seeing some of that. It's, it's an interesting read, and, and we'll direct people to it. But talk about the approach you guys are taking on this question. Yeah, I mean, you, you did a fabulous job of summing up the issue, the, sort of the, the angst, the uncertainty, and lots of people asking those questions. Um, did I make the right call? Do I have regrets? Those sorts of feelings. And so we kind of wanted to approach that, and we wanted to address two things. Like one, the go-forward decision, how to make sense of what's happening now in, in Canada, which most provinces choosing not to use AstraZeneca for any more first doses. And then also to kind of address people like you, like me. I'm, I'm part of Team AstraZeneca. I got mine three weeks ago. Um, how should we feel about the decision we made? And so the, the real crux of what we brought to it, and it isn't a medical lens. None of us are our doctors, or at least as my, my daughters like to say, the real type of doctors. Um, so we're not questioning the medical decisions. What we were really noting is that the analysis that was done by NASI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations, and a bunch of public health experts, is really centered around this private risk-reward balance. What's my risk of getting these very rare blood clots and dying from it versus what's the benefit of me getting vaccinated 
sooner rather than having to wait a couple of weeks and getting a different vaccine. What's my risk of getting COVID in that interim? And so it's, it's really this private versus private analysis. And, you know, I think how many times have we been asked during the pandemic to you know, look out for one another? We're all in this together mm-hmm. to do things for the benefit of others. We're asking 20-year-olds to stay off patios so that older people more susceptible to COVID won't get the effects of their transmission. Yet suddenly on vaccines, we went back to a private versus private analysis. And, and the motivation for, for vaccines, and this isn't an economist talking, this is any public health or health individual, it's partly to protect us, ourselves, yeah, but it's really to protect everyone, to protect others, just to break that chain of transmission. And so that was lost in the analysis. And we call this in economics a, a positive externality. So it's the opposite of things like pollution, which are a negative externality. It's a positive externality. It's doing something that confers benefits on others. And so it's fully reasonable for folks not necessarily to take that into account, do the private-private analysis. But we wanted to point out that it still exists, this, this spillover benefit that people like you getting it by making helping others not get sick during that interim period and also helping others move up the queue to get the vaccines. That's a really important component and arguably a bigger component than the private benefit. And that's been really lost in the discussions and we wanted to bring that back into it. Yeah, and I think that that's an interesting lens to look at it through, right? The positive externalities. What is the, the collective benefit, the broader societal benefit uh, of of these decisions, these collective decisions? We can look at one each one on an individual level, right? And people do take, I think, that, that individual assessment. Uh, but if we look at it through the lens of collectively, what did those decisions amount to? It's a different way of coming at the question, isn't it? It, it is. And, and, you know, the natural outcome, though, here, and the natural response some people might have to someone saying something like this, like do something for the broader good, is, you know, why should I? Why should I take that personal risk to benefit yeah. someone else that I, don't, that I don't know? And we're not saying do this to earn a, a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout badge and a pat on the back. Yeah. You, you do this because, well, A, we do live in a society, so, you know, I like to think we ought to care about others. But even if you don't, when you think it through, if, if I do, if I go and get my AstraZeneca shot, I protected you and all your listeners some small way by breaking that chain of transmission and moving up the queue. But of course, if you do that or they do that, they're protecting me. And so it all comes around. And in the end, if we're all doing these things that have positive externalities, we're all benefiting and we are better off as a result. There is this free rider program where people tend to retrench and say, well, you know, I'd rather get that benefit from you without taking any risk myself. And that's sort of a natural propensity to, to have that, um, that instinct. And we, lead, we end up in a bad outcome where nobody goes and, and, and does that thing where we are all collectively worse off. It was just disappointing that, to see you know, our public health experts kind of leading us down that path of getting everyone to focus only on the private reward versus private risk and really not highlighting the, the public benefit. Yeah, I am, I'm kind of surprised by that, too. And the messaging around all of this has, has been less than ideal, which is really? part of what, what, right, what motivated this, this column. Um, and, and maybe in defense of NASI, maybe, you know, they're, they're sticking in their lane. This is just how they, they assess things and do things. And outside of a pandemic, you know, most of the time we don't really notice this. So maybe this isn't outside of the norm. We just have different expectations right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really tricky thing. And I think another response that others, especially in the medical profession, would have is they, they are, you know, they're beholden to a do no harm maxim. So to go and encourage someone to 
take a very small risk. And I, I should reiterate, the risk of this thing is very, very small. And I think one of the unfortunate consequences of the communication is it's all been focused on the risk of these rare but serious blood clots. Yeah. And when you think about what's changed since you and I got our vaccine, it's not so much the risk. I mean, yes, the incidence of these rare blood clots has, has increased slightly. So originally when, when we took them, they were talking about one in 100 to 250,000. Now it's more like one in 25 to 100,000. Um, so that risk has increased slightly. But of course, the flip side of that is the case fatality rate has improved. So the likelihood of dying if you have this is improving because twofold. One, doctors know what they're doing on them. The original cases, they were treating them with blood thinners like heparin, which is exactly what you would do with a normal blood clot, but the exact wrong thing here. So doctors know how to treat them better, but also I think there's very few people who took AstraZeneca who aren't acutely aware of this risk. So we're all aware of looking out for symptoms, and if treated early, there's a much better chance of success. So the risk hasn't actually changed that much. What's really changed is the reward side, the benefit of getting a, a vaccine sooner. And that's because we're being now flooded with, you know, this is a good story. We're being flooded with these Pfizer vaccines coming. And so when you and I took it, I think the outlook for us was probably, you know, in my mind, I had three to six weeks. I was going to have to wait for a Pfizer. It turned out probably more like three to four. Um, but nowadays, if I wanted a Pfizer, I could probably, if I, you know, phoned 100 pharmacies within 100 kilometers of, of Calgary, I could find one in the next couple of days. And so that has really shrunk. And so that's why I, I don't think any of us writing that piece are disputing the decision as to where we're going now to say, you know, let's hold whatever we have left for after for the for second doses, and we may as well simply use um, mRNA for first doses. It was more the fundamental way in which that was approached where the public health benefits of vaccines seemed ignored from the equation. Yeah, and I, I think it's that's the important takeaway here. And as you guys write in the piece that, you know, those who got it made the right choice. And people should take comfort in that because there, mm -hmm. there is that sense. And I even got a text from somebody here that says, I feel tricked and disappointed that I let mm -hmm. myself be vaccine shamed into taking AstraZeneca when I really wanted to wait. And I, I can understand why people yeah. are feeling that way right now. But, you know, the, the benefit is there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably fair to say as economists, don't get uh, don't get tagged with the empathy label too often. Right. Sadly. But but we really are like this, this piece was a big part of that. Maybe part of it was some person, personal catharsis in writing it. It was to reach out to everybody who is feeling that angst, feeling, you know, maybe duped. Saying, don't feel that. You know, I, I get it. But you did the right thing. It, first of all, um, it would be a very different story if this was not a good vaccine in terms of efficacy. So, yes, there is a safety signal that differs, but in terms of efficacy, pretty much every study has these things within percentage points of each other. And so you can feel very good about that, that you got a good vaccine. And, you know, David Naylor had a wonderful interview on that, which I encourage anyone who took AstraZeneca to, to listen to. Um, so you don't have to worry that you took a vaccine that is subpar. So that's really important to note. And when you took it, you did the right thing. I mean, especially here in Alberta with cases raging, it's not like, you know, it's, it's bad here. We're the worst in North America. Right. <laughs> One thing to be bad, but we're the worst. So the, the likelihood of catching COVID was high. So if there's anywhere that weren't taking AstraZeneca, absolutely here in Alberta, you were right there to do it. And you should absolutely feel good about what you did in terms of the situation we're in now. You're helping the case count drop. 
You're helping advance the vaccination program. And and so we should take a lot of comfort and a lot of pride in that. And I, I think it's it's sad that some you know the communication around AstraZeneca has made such a a good thing, you know, a, a vaccine that sort of marks the start of the end of the pandemic and a good thing in terms of these positive externalities. It's turned it into a, something people have felt uncomfortable and worried and angsty and regretful about. And I, I really hope that, you know, at least once they get past that 20 day period where you sort of mostly focused on, on worrying about this very small risk, once they're past that, just, you know, be proud of what you did and know that you did the right thing. Well said. Uh, again, we'll uh, steer people in the direction of this piece. It's up at theglobeandmail.com. Blake Schaefer, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks, Rob. All right. You as well. Uh, that is Blake Schaefer, Associate uh, Professor of Economics, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, one of the authors of this piece, along with uh, five other economists, uh, most of whom, with the exception of one, uh, Trevor Toom, who's a very young man, apparently. I think he just got vaccinated today, if I, I recall seeing that correctly. But uh, five of the six did get the AstraZeneca vaccine. And look, keep in mind, I mean, remember, Boris Johnson got it. Justin Trudeau got it. Aaron O'Toole got it. Jason Kenney got it. Dr. Dina Hinshaw got it. So, and in fairness to those leaders who were stepping up and saying, look, here's an opportunity. We've got this, these vaccines. Let's get them into two arms. Those people all stepped up. And a lot of us did as well. And it did matter. I think it did matter in terms of having that level of protection then. And yeah, things have changed a bit. When we were making that decision in April, I figured it would probably be June, at least until, you know, a different vaccine would be an option. It turns out maybe that that was a bit sooner, but that's okay. You know, there's some encouraging data that's out right now regarding having an mRNA vaccine as a second dose. But at the same time, it looks as though we may have some available supply when it comes to having an AstraZeneca vaccine as a second dose. Don't kid yourself, Jimmy. If a cow ever got the chance, he'd eat you and everyone you care about. Yeah, if we don't eat them, they're going to eat us, really, is what it comes down to. But look, it's been a rough uh, few months for beef. You had the uh, cooking website Epicurious announce last month they're not going to publish any new beef recipes. Uh, you have this uh, three Michelin star New York restaurant, 11 Madison Park, say we're going with an all vegan menu. So it's not just, you know, concerns about animal welfare. Now there's environmental concerns driving all of this or questions about whether beef is healthy. So there's been a lot of, of uh, bad press for beef as of late, a bit of a backlash against beef. Not me. I'm, I'm still a big fan of beef. And, you know, I think given that, you know, the, the Canadian beef industry, uh, it's, it's sort of a sense of pride for a lot of folks. And, uh, you know, you look back over the years, there's been some tough times for the beef industry. I, I think Canadians still do appreciate it. So are those views changing? Is the perception of beef in Canada uh, being affected by all of these conversations? And so that was a question that the uh, uh, Dalhousie University Agri-Food Analytics Lab set, to, set out to answer. And an interesting survey uh, earlier this month of Canadians and how we feel about beef, how committed we still are to eating beef and whether we've wavered at all uh, over the last year through this pandemic as we've had the opportunity to reflect on healthy choices. Well, joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Professor Sylvain Charlebois, who is director of the uh, Dalhousie University Agri-Food Analytics Lab. Professor Charlebois, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. 
So, yeah, like I say, I mean, you know, there's been a, this this backlash against beef, but how's this all playing with Canadians? Uh, well, uh, we've been uh, monitoring uh, the, uh, I guess, the protein market for quite some time now. I think it's been, I think it's the third or fourth time that we surveyed Canadians on, uh, on beef consumption of the last decade or so. And, um, I mean, I can tell you Canadians are still very committed to, to animal proteins and beef, uh, 92%. So we surveyed Canadians uh, last week. And so 92% of Canadians actually see themselves as, as beef eaters. So that's, that's a lot. And 65% of Canadians actually uh, will eat beef regularly, so at least once a week. So those, those are comforting numbers for, for the beef industry, I would think. The challenge, though, is uh, are the younger generations. I, I think they have other plans, or at least one-third of them, one-third of Canadians under the age of 35 have actually thought in the last 12 months during the pandemic of, uh, of ditching beef for a variety of reasons, uh, environment, uh, animal welfare, uh, the issue of, uh, of health, of course, comes up a lot. Uh, actually, health is probably the number one uh, factor, but the, the, but the other factor, uh, which is probably quite frustrating for cattle producers, uh, especially in Alberta, because they can't really control anything related to what goes on at retail, price is uh, is creeping up there as a really important factor. Uh, I think a lot of people are being spooked by what they're mm-hmm. seeing at the meat counter these days. Well, and that's a big factor. Yeah, I mean, you know, financial pressures affect a lot of our food choices, I think. So we get this combination. You see, you, there's price, you know, there's there's question as to, to whether it's it's healthy to, to eat beef regularly. There's the environmental concerns. There's the animal welfare concerns. What, what seems to loom largest in, on the minds of Canadians? So health is number one. Environment uh, is, is number two. The challenge, of course, those two factors are uh, are have been politicized a lot. <laughs> Many parties have actually weaponized science to support some sort of narrative, either for or against eating beef. And that's not, that's not helping. So going back to the decision of Epicurious to no longer post recipes which would include beef to save the planet, as an example, uh, that sends, I think, the wrong message. Because when you look at the science, um, there's 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 different ways of seeing beef production. Not all beef uh, is produced the same. I mean, there are different kinds of products, and it's. I, I often believe that when these decisions are made very publicly, it, it, it oversimplifies what actually is happening. And frankly, uh, I, I would argue that the, the cattle industry has uh, has. A lot of environmental stewards uh, operating, like uh, I've actually visited many feedlots in Alberta over the years. I visited uh, uh, both Brooks and, and, uh, and High Rivers uh, facilities. Uh, the cattle and beef industry uh, has a lot of really highly responsible people. Uh, especially when it comes to the environment. And so there's a lot of stories that are unknown, and uh, it just distorts the reality of what's actually happening. Now, if you want to ditch beef, that's your business, power to you, but you can't really, um, you know, twist science 
like a buffet, for example. Science is not a buffet. You just don't pick and choose the science you want to support a narrative. Science is, is not an absolute. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's interesting because, you know, there, there's some Canadians in this study, one in four considered, you know, cutting back on beef from their diets. When you look yeah. across the country, though, you know, Canadians do still eat a lot of beef and maybe none more so than, than folks here in Alberta. Yeah, absolutely. So Alberta obviously has the highest rate of, of, of regular beef feeders at 74%. The national average is 65%, but I mean, across the board, uh, from here, the Atlantic to, uh, to BC, um, uh, there's, there's a lot of beef eaters out there. But like I said, uh, clouds are on the horizon. Uh, I, I think if I were in the beef industry, uh, I, I would certainly be comforted by some numbers, but for the younger generation, you, you kind of need to think of, uh, of ways to, to kind of rebuild a new case for them, for the younger generations, because they're slowly looking at options. They're hedging, they're looking at, at, at plant-based or vegetable proteins a little bit more seriously for a variety of reasons. So you want to perhaps uh, not necessarily go against an alternative, because this is, this is why we, we're, we're seeing these protein wars, uh, plant-based um, uh, product manufacturers came in and argued that we're here to replace beef. Well, you can't replace beef. Beef is unique. Yeah, <laughs> it's a yes, natural, yeah, authentic product. <laughs> but you got to offer something unique. So I would argue beef, for the beef industry, it has to really convey to the younger generations that they have something unique, natural, unprocessed, authentic to offer. And it's all about traditions and, you know, Traditions are hard to change. Uh, in Canada, beef is very much part of our culture. It is. Yeah. But it, it's not guaranteed to always be that way, right? So where, where do you see clouds on the horizons here? Well, I think, I mean, I think we should embrace plurality. I mean, it's important to allow consumers to have choice. Um, you know, for the longest time, the trifecta of meat, pork, chicken, and, and beef, got boring. I mean, it just you bought whatever was on sale that week. Uh, now things are a little bit more exciting, I think, because people are talking about proteins, and, and they're talking about proteins most of the time intelligently. <laughs> they're looking at you know, signs, they're looking at options, they're, you know, they're dabbling around the grocery store, and they, they're getting some information. So people are engaged. And so we're not in the era, we just left an era of, of stomach share where Proteins are zero-sum game. Uh, I get I get a piece of your stomach, you lose. Uh, if I don't get that, then you win. It doesn't work that way anymore. It's about value. People are looking at a piece of steak, and they'll see value in it, not just calories. And and I think that's a gain for everyone, including the cattle and beef industry. Well, as you say, look, steak is steak. There's no replacing that. But uh, we, we have talked before steak about... Steak on a barbecue. Come on. Yes. How, how can you beat that? <laughs> but there are different ways of creating that steak. And the idea that you could essentially grow a steak in a lab, the idea of lab-grown meat, and, and you know, there's been huge advances in, in that field. I mean, that's still technically, I guess we could call that the beef industry, but it's, it's a whole lot different than the beef industry than, than we've known up until this point. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, pieces are smaller. Whenever you slap something on a barbecue or you prepare a hamburger, I think a lot of people are just buying less. The volume is not, as, as, is not what it used to be. However, people are, are, are savoring the moment. They are, they are enjoying every single bite they buy, which, which is why I think when, as soon as you start selling value to Canadians, then you can actually make more money. Uh, now, of course, uh, who actually makes money within the value chain is another debate, but at, there's, yeah. there's more market currency uh, to be gained for the beef and cattle industry, I think, moving forward, despite the rhetoric around plant-based. I wouldn't be worried too much about it, except for the younger generations. I actually do think something is going on there. But what about the lab-grown sides? Because that's that's actually meat that, that people oh, are eating, yeah. right? So, you know, you, yeah, you cut out the cattle producers, you cut out the the, uh, the packing plants, you cut a whole lot out of the equation potentially. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And we just uh, we're just uh, we're just trying to finish this uh, this pandemic. We saw a lot of closures. Uh, I mean, you guys uh, got hit real hard with red uh, with. Um, with the Red Deer and uh, and High River, and so yeah, absolutely, lab-grown products. Uh, I think they're coming. Uh, regulations are going to be an issue, but it's a matter of time before they get approved in the United States. And when that happens, it's like going to come in Canada. Don't, now, do people have the appetite to eat lab-grown stuff? Uh, about 25% of Canadians actually would try it. Um, uh, most Canadians would, would stay on the sideline for that. But things can change. Things can change. But absolutely, I, I think that it's certainly a, a threat uh, to to the industry for, for sure over time. Very interesting findings. We'll leave it there. Sylvain Charlebois, always appreciate it. Thanks for joining us here today. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All the best. That is uh, Sylvain Charlebois, director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. So a survey of 1,500 Canadians earlier this month. Results suggest 92% of Canadians are beef eaters. Alberta has the highest rate of consumption, BC the lowest. A mere 8% of Canadians don't eat beef at all. But the survey suggests that could change. Over the past year, one in four Canadians considered cutting beef from their diets. 47% believe the number of people quitting beef will increase over time. 44% consider this a move in the right direction. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Thursday afternoon. We will have more time for your phone calls in this hour, 403-974-8255. Obviously, some interesting developments in Alberta politics to talk about today and to what extent there is a dissent or even a caucus revolt within the UCP. Much more on that story to get to, plenty of other stuff to get to as well. Off the top of this hour, though, I want to talk a bit about uh, government's pandemic response. And, and part of that has been the enforcement side of the public health measures that are in place. Now, Alberta has been dealing with, uh, obviously, a spike in cases. Governments have been doubling down on that approach. The Alberta government has uh, increased the fines for violating health restrictions. Even the city of Calgary recently voted to increase the uh, fine for the, um, with regard to the mask policy, the mask mandate. Uh, and the hope that higher fines will mean more compliance. And more compliance can then mean we can uh, start to get out of all of this. But the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, which has been following all of this very closely, has some concerns about that kind of an approach. 
that uh, increasing fines is not a productive way of dealing with all of this. And it's something that's been happening across the country, in fact, not just here in Alberta. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Abby Deshman, Director of the Criminal Justice Program for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, ccla.org is the website. Abby, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So like I say, I mean, Alberta, both the Alberta government, city of Calgary have taken this approach, but it's it's something that's been happening right across the country, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, I think right from the outset, we started to hear uh, leaders, uh, law enforcement calling for steep fines and punishments for people um, who are alleged to violate, um, you know, what were really restrictive and unprecedented public health orders coming down. And and the, those calls have only increased as the pandemic has wore on. You know, we've, we've been tracking this as best we can across the country. Um, and four out of the five provinces that we were able to get detailed information on had dramatically increased the number of tickets issued uh, in the second wave of the pandemic as compared to the first. So it's both an increase in enforcement, in other words, more tickets being written, and, and also we're seeing increases in the fines for those tickets. So it's both then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, uh, Alberta is not alone in increasing the amount of money that people are being fined. Ontario has done that, Nova Scotia has done that, British Columbia has done that. Um, and it all goes back to this logic that you uh, mentioned in your intro, that if we find people, if we punish people, we're going to get better compliance um, with these orders. And unfortunately, uh, it's not that simple. And, um, you know, the evidence from social science uh, is actually increased punishment doesn't tend to result in more people following the law. Um, and in fact, when you use that for a public health crisis, which is what is going on right now, um, you often end up pushing the very people that need the most supports, that need the most services, pushing them farther away from public health supports and services because they're afraid of the punitive consequences of, you know, having uh, too many family members in one house or um, going out for a walk past curfew, which is what's happening in Quebec right now. Well, let's talk about that, because I, I think there's that, that assumption then that if we're going to have these rules, that they need to mean something, that if people don't have to follow them, then what's the point of having them? And that leads us down the path of stepping up enforcement and increasing these fines. But as you point out, then, there's there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that that approach works. How do, how do we know that? Yeah, so uh, there's, there's some studies that have been done about fines in particular and uh, really mixed results um, about whether, you know, increasing fines for impaired driving, for example, has any impact on impaired driving rates. Um, But certainly, you know, we have a lot more studies about things like mandatory minimum um, sentences, mandatory minimum amounts of time in jail. And it's really clear that just increasing the punishment, uh, making sure that people who are convicted of certain offenses spend a minimum five, ten years in jail, that doesn't deter people from committing crimes. It doesn't impact crime rates. And particularly in the COVID context, you know, in order for people to follow these laws, they have to know them, they have to understand them, and they have to be able, they have to be in a position that they can comply with them. Um, a lot of the spread of COVID-19 right now um, in my neck of the woods is being driven by people who are getting sick at work, who are coming back home to multi-generational households, who are in crowded buildings where only one elevator is working, who need to sit on crowded buses to get to their essential jobs. Right? Those are not people that have any meaningful choice about the health risks that they are being exposed to. 
um, and exposing those communities, which are predominantly racialized communities, to increased law enforcement, increased punishment, increased fines, only uh, compounds the harms um, and the difficulties that those people are facing. So do you find that, and has it been the experience that the enforcement and the application of these fines, that this approach tends to disproportionately uh, affect certain communities? Yeah, that's certainly um, one of our primary concerns. Uh, you know, we unfortunately don't have the statistics in Canada because that, that information is not kept um, by most law enforcement agencies and it's certainly not being released. But there have been studies um, in New York, in the United States, in the UK that have clearly shown that COVID-related fines are disproportionately being handed out to racialized people, black people, um, people who live in lower socioeconomic neighborhoods. And that's not a surprise. You know, there's higher police presence in those neighborhoods. There are more police being called to those neighborhoods. We know that there is um, systemic discrimination uh, generally in our policing interactions with racialized communities. And um, there's no reason to expect that when you put police on the front line of a pandemic response, that those same patterns wouldn't emerge. So what would your advice be then to municipalities and to provinces when it comes to enforcing these public health mandates? Yeah, you know, I think there is a role for enforcement, but it really has to be a very backseat role to uh, what are proven and effective public health measures. That's community supports, that's testing, that's contact tracing, that's supports for people who need to self-isolate, you know, making sure that if someone um, is feeling ill, that they don't have to choose between staying home from their job and possibly you know, losing their apartment or going into work sick. Um, and uh, right now, it's, it's actually equitable access to vaccines, right? Making sure that that vaccination rollout strategy is targeting the communities and people that need it most, um, and that we have really robust supports and education for people. Right? Those are the public health tools that have been very effective in um, other countries uh, and in previous uh, public health crises that Canada has faced. Um, and that's really what we need to maintain a laser focus on uh, as we try and make it through this third and, and hopefully uh, last wave of COVID. Indeed. Well, more on all of this at uh, policingthepandemic.ca, the Policing the Pandemic Mapping Project, much more as well as mentioned at ccla.org. Abby Deshman, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. No, thank you. All right. All the best. Abby Deshman with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and uh, is their director of the criminal justice program involved in the uh, Policing the Pandemic Mapping Project. You can read more at policingthepandemic.ca. So uh, they have some concerns with an over-reliance on enforcement, higher fines, and their different ways of you know, encouraging compliance with, with public health measures. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.